help you. This is the Cloisterbell Podcast. Hello and welcome everyone back to the Cloisterbell podcast. This week uh, I'm here, Rob, and I'm with Liam. Hello there. Hi, and we are in the middle of revisiting Big Finish from 1999. Yep, 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years. Does it feel like a long time? 1999? Yeah, yeah, it does because, I mean, when we're talking about. I mean, we would have, oh, we would have just started secondary school, or well, two years in, I think. Oh, well, we were one. in year eight, second year. Anyway, whatever. Possibly but yeah, either. we were in sort of like the early stages of secondary school. And that does feel like a lifetime ago. How about you? Does it feel like a long, distant memory? It's, oh, it feels a bit distorted now. You mentioned secondary school, and I remember kind of getting home from school and watching. Um, Shorter, Scream with the Schalke. So, but that was obviously a good few years after that. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I remember that. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like... Well, it's only three, only three years after the TV movie. Yes, that's true. That that feels like a long time ago. Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah. Mind, it doesn't feel like five minutes ago since I was reading a copy of Doctor Who magazine, and it had a interview with Paul McGann, Daphne Ashbrook. And then it was like, uh, wow, it's been 10 years since we shot that. And I remember thinking, wow, that's such a long time. <laughs> so, wow, I must have read that in um, 2006. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, I remember uh, going, actually, when we were uh, just going into the TV movie just after it, I think Doctor Who magazine obviously had a, a big feature on it. That It was the leading article. I remember... Um, Paul McGann was uh, there was a photograph of him and he was standing behind a, a, a standing in front of the co- uh, TARDIS console, not the one in the TV movie. Uh, I think it was must have been a one at some exhibition somewhere. And to make him look mysterious, he was holding a crystal. Um, I remember that, and I remember there was a pullout, sixteen-page uh, um, special booklet in the Radio Times. I think I've still got it somewhere. And it was, you know, about the history of, of Doctor Who, how, what we could look forward to. There was a competition which I entered, and if you won, you uh, you would have actually got a, a, a frame of the film. Oh, and that, it, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I didn't win. Uh, so disappointed. But, but, but Who's got that? I have no idea. But I'm a, Someone that doesn't appreciate it. <laughs> some loser, even though he won, or she. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I remember that, yeah. That's pretty cool. Uh, so yes, it's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, a long, long time ago. <laughs> um, so, The Whispers of Terror, written by Justin Richards. Yes, yes, that's true. And in fact, he makes a, a cameo as the, the answer phone message. Um, yes. But I, I, was looking forward to, I was looking forward to The Whispers of Terror uh, for a couple of uh, reasons. One, because it was actually written by Justin Richards and... <laughs> He'd actually written for the Virgin New Adventures um, 
Theatre of War in particular I remember enjoying, and he's also written for The Missing Adventures and the BBC books. Um, and of the ones that I've read, I always enjoy, enjoyed those. Um, but I was also looking forward to it because it's an audio adventure which which uses um, the, the, the villains actually this 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 creature made of sound. And I thought, ah, oh, this the potential of this story could be absolutely amazing. So I was really really looking forward to listening to it. Yeah, it was made for audio mm. in, in theory, but. Um whether it was successful at being scary or not <laughs> is another question yeah but but it was a very interesting idea mm-hmm. so before we get to that anything been happening this week news wise no well news wise there's a there's uh, there's a few places which this seems to be getting a bit more traction which is apparently for the next series of doctor who the bbc are looking to rescheduling it again uh, and broadcasting it on a saturday Mm-hmm. Um, the reasons being was apparently, apparently this is because the BBC are concerned about the viewing figures because as the series went along the viewing figures have I mean the way that's been reported dramatically plummeted it's been a bit interesting because as the series was um, progressing Doctor Who magazine was keeping an eye on the viewing figures and wrote a couple of articles so in Doctor Who magazine issue 533 they actually said Doctor Who is up by more than two and a half million viewers on average from last year's run. And then the issue after that, 534, they said overall Jodie Jodie Whittaker's first series averaged an impressive 7.96 million viewers per week. And then the issue after that, they had another one where they went into a bit more detail because by that time the whole series had been broadcast. So they were able to look at the, the viewing figures as a whole. And what they said was... Now that Jodie Whittaker's first series is complete, we can present a more detailed breakdown. Um, Last issue, we reported that an average of 7.96 million watched each episode within a week of transmission. Now we can confirm that the average was 8.49 million viewers within four weeks. That's a notable increase, showing that while the vast majority watch within the first few days, there are half a million or so who catch up weeks later. Um, And funny enough, so I think it's a bit interesting that they seem, they, the BBC seem, seem to be seriously considering broadcasting Doctor Who back on, uh, on a Saturday. Um, yeah. Because actually, I thought broadcasting on a Sunday worked. And I remember mm-hmm. I came across uh, a tweet some time ago by Russell T. Davis, who was saying that when it was announced that they were broadcasting on a Sunday, he thought, well, that's not going to work. But actually, when it came to it, he thought, oh, this is absolutely perfect. Um so it's, it, I think it's a bit of a, I think it's a bit of a funny decision because I do think since the show's come back, um, I think viewing habits have changed considerably, uh, for all sorts of reasons. One which that Doctor Who magazine article quoted hints at, which is that um, the fact that people are able to catch up uh, weeks after the broadcast gives some flexibility, and people, you know, so there's that. But I also think how people sat down and watched television on a Saturday has changed as well. Um, so if they do reschedule the show for next series uh, on a Saturday, um, it'll be interesting to see whether that makes a, makes a difference with the viewing figures. I suspect not. I actually think that the fact that there's, a, there's, a, there's actually a gap 
I think that um, from the last series to the next one, um, I actually think that the viewing figures would will actually decrease. Mm. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. It's just that my feeling of it is that um, people aren't potentially excited about Doctor Who as as they once were. Um, that isn't to say that I show that that isn't to say that I think the show is poor in any way whatsoever. It's just that because now that the show's gone on for it's been more than ten years, people naturally move on. Um, fans will tune in. But in terms of the general viewers, whether they their interests will remain, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But we'll see. Mm. And I wonder um, what kind of changes the BBC might ad- adopt in the future. Because they're very open about their um, BBC iPlayer, mm-hmm. how they want that service to be um, the highest standard in the world. Um, and they're always trying to look at ways to get ahead of the game and deliver the content um, the best way possible. Mm-hmm. I wonder if they'll ever look into dropping out a whole series in one go. That's true, because I think... I mean, it, it's great that the BBC are, uh, are approaching BBC iPlayer in that regard. It makes total sense. Um, mm. But obviously, I think their biggest uh, competitor in that regard is, is Netflix. Um, yeah. That That's no bad thing to... Emulate, you know, emulate the success of Netflix, but at the same time, you've got to recognise that, um, or rather, the BBC has got to recognise that um, they'll they'll never win the, the the competition with regards to Netflix, and they've got their own strengths which um, they should promote as well. It's interesting as well, is that there's this idea of Brit, what's it called, Britflix, which I don't know whether you heard, but that, Brit, Britbox. That's it, Britbox. Yeah. Um, whether that whether that works and whether there's um, whether that replaces iPlayer, I don't know. For for those for, for listeners who may not be aware of this, it's um, it's this idea that the BBC, ITV, and Channel Four will essentially have um, their their own version of Netflix, if you like. But it's there. It's it's the television shows from these three uh, television networks bundled into one thing uh, it'll be a hard thing to work out because um, other than the BBC all these other networks are um, dependent on advertising so integrating the two into one mm-hmm. um, should be interesting yeah well it's funny that you mention uh, revenues um, Again, within within recent weeks, um, a lot of radio stations, a lot of local radio stations from um, from quite popular um, radio companies are getting rid of them, and a lot of journalists alongside that. And I think a lot of people's reaction was just, "Oh, that's a shame," but it doesn't really matter. But actually, I was reading a um, an article in the Spectator where they were looking at the, looking at this in a lot more detail, and a lot of these radio shows are were reliant on um, advertising revenues, and actually they performed a very vital task. Which, if if they're there to provide entertainment and people listen to music, but there's also the news coverage. And what the the journalists were doing was investigating not only um, central government, but also mm. local government as well. And the fact that these radio stations are closing um, 
is actually a lot more concerning than perhaps people <clears throat> realise because um, holding local governments and central government to account is likely to, de to decline. Um, I only mention that because you know, the, the, you're mentioning advertising revenue and I think uh, advertising revenue is, is, is a much bigger deal than perhaps people realise. Certainly, that it, certainly from reading that article in the Spectator, it was like, oh, I never thought of it along those lines. And yeah, we, we should be concerned, and it is a massive shame, much more of a shame than we perhaps realise that these these radio stations are closing down. Yeah. Um, but this is good, something that's going right across the board. Um, the way, th and of course, I've noticed that the BBC is pushing um, their podcast app a lot, um, mm -hmm. a lot more now. Um, and that kind of mirrors the um, the way television is on demand now, mm -hmm. um, and the the podcast could become more of a prominent um, replacement for our radio stations. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bit weird with how television's going now. So you got ITV, for example, which has programs like The X Factor and Britain's Got Talent. Um, mm. And they've been going on for quite some time. People are bored with them. The viewing figures keep on plummeting. But the reason why they keep on commissioning the show is because of the amount of money that that those show brings in through advertising revenue. Yeah. Um, so people aren't watching them, but ITV gets a lot of money from the advertising linked with those shows. Um, but if no one's watching, then what's the point? It's a bit weird. BBC's got a massive fight on its hands because although it is producing good drama, I think when people have got the options for Netflix and Amazon Prime, and particularly with Netflix, because the scope, you know, they're producing original movies, original television shows, which have high quality, and are clearly tapping into a, a need much more than what the BBC uh, is able to do. And it's getting a lot of criticism also for its news coverage. Mm. There's a lot more question from, from members of the public of going, well, what's the point of the license fee? Yeah, so it's 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 interesting times with with what's going on with how people are consuming television and advertising revenues and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, I think we're on a cusp of you know another major change. It'll have to adapt some way. Yeah. So anyway, there's the, the, that with regards to the viewing figures. But I think also, I think because being Doctor Who fans, I think we're probably a bit more apprehensive with the viewing figures for Doctor Who simply because it got cancelled back in 89 for that precise reason. Yeah. But how people view television is completely different back, you know, from now, uh, now comparing it to 1989. So I don't. I mean, ultimately, the Doctor Who will never go away. Um, but whether it goes away for a short while or not. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, if the show, and this is a big if, if the show were to be cancelled, um, which, I mean, at that stage, I don't think there's any signs of that happening, but if it were, uh, I don't think we as fans should be massively concerned because what 2005 showed was that the show can come back and be tremendously successful. Mm. So if it were to be cancelled, I think I think there would be a much more much more of a recognition that Okay, we just need to actually have a hiatus, if you like, uh, exactly. um, not for as long as 
as we initially waited, but maybe, I don't know, say five years, and then we can bring the show back and have a massive relaunch. Yeah. Totally. Five years doesn't seem like too long. No, no. So, now we'll move on to Doctor Who, The Whispers of Terror. Mm-hmm. And, obviously, we mentioned before, this came out in 1999, and it's the third release in the monthly range. The first standalone story for the sixth Doctor. Mm-hmm. And it features the Doctor and Perry. Yes, and there there are a number of things which make this fall very much within the 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 Colin Baker era. One of them was the fact that the the Doctor and Perry seem to be in sort of bickering mode, which was um, a main staple of Colin Baker's first uh, season as the Doctor where the Doctor and Perry seemed to get on up to a point, but there was an awful lot of arguing. Sarcasm and bickering, yeah. Yeah, which I think did get a bit wearing, and it, it did constantly raise the question, why is Perry staying with the Doctor? They don't seem to be getting on. Um, and I know that the Big Finish Audio Adventures, as the series progresses, tends to soften the sixth Doctor. Mm. Um but initially, certainly in the f- the first few moments of the uh, of episode one of the Whispers of Terror, I, I was a bit oh no, the Doctor's being a bit uh, irritating and smug, and um, you know th- there there were certain comments I thought that he was making with Perry, which were you know uh, you know completely unnecessary and argumentative. But actually, mm-hmm. um, I think what Justin Richards has done, who who who's written the whispers of terror actually handles it quite well he places the show within the sixth doctor's era quite well in that regard but it's not overbearing it's it's there but um but it's it's sort of it's there in the opening moments and then they just seem to get on quite well um so actually my initial concerns were were quickly dealt with and um i think they get on quite well within within the story and the the argumentative nature actually became more humorous yeah and then they um, go back to arguing again in the final scene don't they so it's kind of bookmarked in the story there yeah and th- that sort of thing that that reminded me of the way that um the mark of the rani ended where you know they, they go into the tardis and there's a bit of an argument in fact even uh, even the doctor <laughs> you know even the doctor at the end of the Mar- uh, mark of the rani says you know, when one of the characters says, what do you actually do? And then he goes, argue mainly. <laughs> and, then, and, then they, and then they dematerialize. <laughs> but yeah so, so, yeah, so the story sort of like bookended with that, but it, it felt more humorous. And I, I think um, Colin Baker and Nicola Bryant um, bounced off each other quite well and you know, instilled and emphasized rather the more humorous nature of it. So the story kicks off with um, the Doctor and Perry in the TARDIS. And then we see Dent and Fotherill mm-hmm. um, sneaking around the museum. So we're introduced to the first characters in the story. Yep. And then we meet the museum curator, um, Guntham, who's um, listening to these um, audios of Vistine Crane. Yes, and um, of course the the curator, that wonderful distinctive voice, Peter Miles, uh, a really, really good actor, 
Um, and in terms of in terms of Doctor Who, is probably famous um, for being in Genesis of the Daleks. But he's also been uh, in in previous audio adventures, mainly Paradise of Death, which was a, a BBC Radio production, and that that was quite that was quite good. Um, so it was nice to have Peter Miles back, and he always gives a great performance. And uh, as the curator, it was, it was quite delightful. Obviously, he's not the curator. Oh no no no! He's just a curator. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and as the um, Doctor and Perry arrive. Then Perry wants to leave, but the Doctor's quite shocked, um, and he's defensive of like his curiosity. He wants to check it all out. Mm-hmm. It's a bit like when um, did Perry want to leave in the two Doctors as well when they arrived on the station? Yeah, yeah, she did. And there's the um, and there's the interaction between uh, between them and the Doctor being completely bombastic. Um, and in fact. Later on, Justin Richards uh, uses that and drops in some wonderful lines where you even got the sixth doctor uh, going on about how someone, uh, the the audio that they're listening to is, is from an actor. And he's going on about how it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's way of overboard and not <laughs> something that he doesn't particularly like. Um, and this is, a, this is a, so it's, um, there's a wonderful wink to the audience in that regard because of all the of all the doctors, there's the sixth. There's certainly <laughs> certainly the loudest. And obviously, we hear the whispers in the corridor. Mm-hmm. Um, after the Doctor and Perry arrive, and we hear Crane's voice. Yeah. Um, and at this stage, I wouldn't know if it's just being emulated or what's going on. Yeah, in fact, because that's another that's another good idea of the story. So not only do we have a creature, a monster which is dangerous, which is purely formed of sound but it's mm-hmm. this idea of how tone inflection etc can change meaning so i thought that was that was a nice um element of the story as well so it's it's bringing everything in to do with sound and justin richard's really sort of relishing that and we've got dent and rotherall um sorry because then we've got dent and um fotherall they're in the sound archive trying to um change the sound clip is that right at this stage yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah um but they can't find the section of the clip they need because it's been changed yes and then they hear someone whistling outside father goes to investigate and he's called down the corridor by dent's voice mm-hmm. I mean, as if you'd follow when she was just in the room behind him well no, i think you'd be a bit i think you would be a bit curious wouldn't you <laughs> yeah but yeah, it is, I suppose it is one of those things where... He deserves to die. <laughs> wow, that's harsh, but you're right. Um, <laughs> yeah, surely you would go back to where you've been. Um, but I think it is one of those things of going, well, if he didn't, there wouldn't be much of a story. I think it's one of those things of... You, you could maybe see someone um, going to investigate, going, oh, that, that's curious. But... Yeah, wouldn't most people's reaction going, oh, hang on, I thought they were just from the room I just left. Hang on, I'll just go back. I know, and then he follows the voice and then um, I think he's electrocuted, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. and it's quite an eerie laugh. Obviously, um, this entity is pretty crazy. Yes. So the Doctor, after this, walks walks in on Dent while she's editing the audio mm-hmm. and she runs off and they go after her. Um, and then they find a dead body. Is that um, Fotherill at this point? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and this scene's a bit more reminiscent of the two doctors. I think find, finding the body. Because of, there's that stench of death um, on the on the station when they're arriving, the two doctors. Oh, yes, you're right, yeah. Yeah. But whereas uh, with Robert Holmes, he he, um, he put some quite graphic and uh, powerful words uh, for the Doctor to say, you know, there's, um, you know, about how the flesh is peeling off wet bones and all the rest of it, um, really selling the moment. Um, in comparison, I think just Justin Richards gives just a, a, a much more subtle and much more palatable um, version of that. So shortly after this, um, the Doctor and Perry are found, interrogated and escorted away. Mm-hmm. And this is where they meet the curator. Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. And of course it's explained that they're in the Museum of Oral Antiquities. Mm-hmm. What do you think could be stored there? Well, I think um, pretty much anything that's regarded as important, so I think it'll pro- it probably could be. Like podcasts. Yes, but uh, definitely um, very culturally important podcasts. Uh, one springs to mind, but it goes without saying. And um, the, um, you know, their famous speeches, music and so on. And in fact, uh, not all that long ago, uh, BBC Radio was broadcasting um, some Big Finish audio adventures. And one of them... It sort of had a similar setting where it was in a, a museum dedicated entirely to sound, but this was a Peter Davison story. Mm. And it was um, a piece of progressive rock music, which turned out to be, which turned out to be deadly. Uh, <laughs> and it, it actually, the, the, the sound actually had the, the uh, certain resonance, which actually could destroy the entire universe. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think whoever wrote that story wasn't a fan of progressive rock. So yeah, that was uh, that was in a story called the Entropy Composition uh, by Rick Briggs. So yeah, it's this it's this idea that a, a lost prog rock symphony is unearthed from the vaults of a um, of a sound museum with catastrophic consequences for the entire cosmos. And it was actually tremendous good fun. I enjoyed li- I enjoyed listening to that. Well, that's cool. And there's another. Um, audio that springs to mind um, which is the horror of glam rock and that's a, a McGann one with um, Bernard Cribbins oh right okay that sounds good isn't there another one which has the I think it's called the rapture or well, I may be wrong and it's uh, I think it's set on Ibiza yes does that have a, a musical connection I I don't remember. That's one of the early fifty releases, I think. Oh, right, okay. Oh, and actually, wasn't isn't there a one called Bing Bagger Boom or something? I've completely got that wrong. But I think that's uh, a one with um, that. I think that's with Mel and the Seventh Doctor as well. And isn't that isn't that something to do with the Eurovision Song Contest? Yes, you're right there. The Intergalactic Song Contest. Fantastic. Uh, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to listen to that one because I bet that's tremendous fun as well. I think that's a good idea. I've got a sneaking suspicion. Was that written by Gareth Roberts? Yes. Ah, right. I thought so. Okay. So, so um, no, because if you if you follow him on Twitter, he's uh, and in fact, even if you've just uh, read some of his uh, Doctor Who stories, and uh, you know, you kind of get a sense of his, his musical taste. Uh, but I really like his uh, Doctor Who stories in general, anyway, because they're tremendous fun and very witty. Um, 
So yeah, I look forward to getting around to that one. So the doctor gets around to meeting the museum's curator. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells them he's seen a woman, which will be Dent. Yep. The doctor tells him tells the curator that he's misquoted the audio file. Mm-hmm. And of course he's right, because the audio file's been changed. Um, and curator Gunman is shocked that the audio file's been changed. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the doctor insists that they need help here. And this is the the point in every story where the characters just accept the Doctor's help. <laughs> yeah, and um, sometimes it's, it's about your matter of convenience, but you, you do have to encounter that moment and, and then just get on with it. That's one thing that the new series of Doctor Who, and I'm talk- obviously I'm talking about the televised series, they have a psychic paper, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very quick way of dealing with that. So you, you, natu- you just quickly vault over that issue. Um but this is obviously tied in with the classic series, so you've got to have the Doctor just quickly taking charge of the situation as, as much yeah. as he can and then just showing showing his capability and understanding of going, right, look, I'm capable, and then just getting on with it. I think in this, actually, it's, um, it's handled quite well because um, the, the detective, um, det- uh, Detective Berkeley, I think it is, yeah, um, I think it basically, you know, says, okay, fair enough, but I'll still be keeping an eye on you because, you know, there's a dead body and there's an invest, you know, I'm, I'm not just going to trust you on a whim. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's realistically handled from that point of view. Similarly, um, last week when we, we talked about Phantasmagoria, there's a moment where the doctor has been questioned about who he is, but there's just too much urgency about what's going on mm-hmm. that it just gets, um, it just gets brushed over and the move on with the story yeah i thought that was handled quite well because in phantasmagoria the doctor uses uh, dr uh, holly wells um passion which is uh, which is antiques initially he just quickly talks i think i think it's a post uh, vase or something like that um and then because he's picked up on the on the chap's passion and then he just quickly goes into a conversation about it it uh, I think that was handled quite well as well. So the doctor mentions that he hears whispers and they tell, they tell him that it's just feedback he's hearing. <laughs> but all these whispers are dropping in through the episode. We know that the whispers have killed someone at this stage. Yeah, I think the I think the sense is that you've got this, this strange voice, disembodied of course, um, which is screaming and, and repeating itself and I think the idea I think the idea is that it's meant to be this um, cacophony of sound which is difficult to um, to cope with and maybe that maybe there was this idea that you know the, the vibrational energy of the sound is you know it's um, it's something that's incredibly powerful and therefore scary um, which if that's the case I mean one I, th- I think that's probably the the way to go but if that, if that was the case I don't think it I don't think it fully comes off no not quite no in fact because that's one of the things as well because I think I think having whispers peppered through the story could be quite unnerving mm. I mean I find whisper I, I find whispers quite irritating in general anyway it, it, there's something about you know people talking in hushed tones which just irritates the hell out of me <laughs> 
Oh, just bugs me. It's just like, look, if you it's if you're gonna have a private conversation, by all means, but can you naff off and do it somewhere else? <laughs> but do you remember um, ages ago that I think there was an advert for the Territorial Army, and they were trying. No. Well, the, yeah. So it was oh. it was this televised uh, advert for the Territorial Army to to get recruitment, and the whole advert was people talking like this, so you could join the <laughs> army, and I'm just going. Joining the army isn't known for being particularly quiet. So it's just like, what on earth's going on? So I found that advert irritating. Um, <laughs> so, but anyway, I digress. So I think I think it's uh, it's potentially this unnerving uh, idea, and in my case, also an irritating one. But um, it doesn't quite come off. I don't find it as unnerving as I think it. It's. I don't find it. Perhaps they could have they could have figured figured out a better way of um, making it sound more unpleasant to the listener. Yes, maybe. And because funny enough, one thing that that struck me was because uh, I think this is a good idea. And in fact, Kate Bush, um, ha- it's 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 one of her less uh, known songs, but it's called Experiment Four, and that tells the story of um, this. Uh, this uh, this idea of the armies, which is uh, which is they create sound, which um, which will kill people, but the sound becomes sentient and then goes off killing people willy nilly. They've got absolutely no control of it, c- control over it. It's a really mm. good song, bizarre idea for one, but it's really rather yeah. good. And in her album uh, Hounds of Love, there's a song called Waking the Witch which is quite unnerving and scary. And uh, she created some very unusual sounds uh, in that song. And um, she and in, in the song Experiment 4, she uses samples from that previous song, Waking the Witch. Okay. Uh, I just, just something to, to, it just seemed to cross my mind. And in, that, in some respects, Kate Bush's song Experiment 4, I think is much more successful in telling that idea than than the whispers of terror. I mean, I feel like um, it was a good opportunity to tell a really scary story. Mm-hmm. With us listening to an audio story, you could have really got the audience um, scared, couldn't you, on some levels? Yeah, yeah, you could. And as I said before, this was a story that I was really looking forward to. And that was one of the reasons. This is an audio adventure. There's this idea of uh, this this creature made of sound, which is very dangerous, and but oh, it's going to be fantastic what they do with this. But um, it there's potential here, but they don't quite um, like. For example, there's a bit when uh, the doctor has explained that because this there's this sound creature, they have to completely seal off the museum so it doesn't get out and escape. So it's it it's an issue that's self-contained, and they deal with it, which makes sense. And then later on, we hear supposedly the doctor on the intercom telling uh, Perry and I forgot who she's with at that point. Maybe the curator. But I don't think that's the case. But anyway, whoever she's with, of yeah. going, oh, I've I've over exaggerated the situation. You can unseal the museum. Now, I don't know whether you thought this, but I thought it was perfectly obvious at that point that that wasn't the doctor. It was the, yeah, yeah, definitely. It was the sound creature impersonating the doctor. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, the situation's dealt with a few moments later because the actual doctor walks into the room, uh, seeming like ten seconds later, ten seconds later, and going, "Oh, very clever," and all the rest of it. Yeah. 
Now, I think you could really have gone to town on that. Um, yeah, because, because the parties in this story have parted ways. Yes. They're going to need to communicate. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, they could have, the story could have um, really tried to deceive the listener. Yes. If that's if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I'm getting at. I think that would have been really good of like throwing the the audience off a bit and and then second guessing is that doctor or or isn't it what you know uh, and get the grips with that and then you you could do something really interesting and atmospheric on that side as well because you've got the sound creature who can basically impersonate uh, everyone at once. I think yeah. there was one little twist in this story. It's the character of Napton. Oh, yes. Now, I thought that was good because the curator, played by Peter Miles, is blind. So that's um, a character trait, which I think works just in terms of the story, which is the fact, you know, he's the creator of sound. And because he's unable to see, he's reliant on sound. So he's the perfect person to create this museum. Yeah. Great. But what it also means is that the fact that he cannot see who he's having a conversation with. So yeah, when when there's that that twist because he didn't he wasn't able to see, he's only going off what he can hear. Yeah, I thought I thought that was good. Yeah. But I feel like they could have done more with it. Mm-hmm. It was it was a sudden twist and then all of a sudden you think, "All oh, right, okay." Because we knew something was going on with Napton. Yeah, but it could have um, had more more bearing on the story, I thought, than it did. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, nonetheless, I think that, that that was one thing that 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 certainly worked with the story, and that that was a nice yeah. um, that was a nice idea, and I realised very well. And when it's finally revealed at the end, I thought, oh, yeah, that that's quite nice, and that that works. So going back to where we were in the story, we moved on to part two. Mm-hmm. And we find out that Beth Purnell was Vicine Crane's agent working with him. And she is um, obviously coming in. She's involved with getting this tribute broadcast. Yes, yes. Um, and it's just, it's only a week after Crane's death. Mm-hmm. But the story with um, Purnell and Crane takes quite a bit of time to become clear, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it does. But... Uh... It provides a, a bit of a mystery. You you clearly know that uh, Pennell's up to no good, but you don't fully understand how. So that that provides a, a nice mystery and something for for us, the listener, to, to grip onto and follow the narrative. Of course, yeah. uh, Pennell is played by Lisa Bowerman, um, who again, in terms of Doctor Who, she'd appeared in Survival, but is also famous for playing uh, Bernie Summerfield in the Big Finish audio range. Um, and we've actually met her. Yeah, yeah. I remember when we first met her, we were in a queue, a very long queue, to meet someone. Mm-hmm. And then um, she just tries to walk past. She's like, "Excuse me," and I just go, "Oh, sorry, Lisa." <laughs> first name terms already. Wow, that was quick. Uh, wasn't her? Wasn't it her birthday as well? Because I remember there was a big thing. You know, she she there was a cake. Wasn't it? It was Benny's birthday, I think. Oh, not not uh, not Lisa's. All right, okay. Not Lisa's. Yeah. All right, okay. Um, but anyway, I, th- I think that was quite. Uh, that's quite nice um, having Lisa Bowerman uh, cast in this story as well, because although 
as we've explained in previous podcasts, I'm not I'm not overly familiar with with Big Finish. Um, you're certainly much you you know much you're much more of a listener than I am. But I have heard uh, one or two stories and uh, snippets here and there, and she clearly plays Bernice very well. Um, but she's a very talented actress because you know you can tell the difference between Bernice Summerfield and Purnell. Mm-hmm. They're uh, they're very different. Um, you get the you get the sense that Purnell's not a not a particularly pleasant person. No, she she can play such a good villain, can't she? Really. Oh yeah, yeah. And she certainly does. Yeah, plays Purnell very very well. Yeah, and it's interesting um, at the end of this story with when Crane and Purnell are talking, and he points out that it's her that um, changing the meaning of um, people's words mm-hmm. yes um, ironically mm-hmm. not him yeah yeah so the doctor directly asks Purnell if she'll be running for president mm-hmm. and she's a bit vague which apparently she has been for the past week but all she does is insist she'll honour Crane's um, ideas mm-hmm. yeah yeah and of, co- and of course um, she's doing the opposite of that she's using this opportunity to get into office mm-hmm. um, and it's interesting the doctor points out the the main issues of that um, going against the wishes of the electoral and um, executing all these ideas that she's got like she doesn't believe in democracy mm-hmm. so I wonder how she would have um, got things done her way yeah, and to such an extent. It's I mean it's interesting listening to this story now in 2019 from with regards to th- this element of of the story because I feel that and this is no fault of of Justin Richards in the production at the time because the politics of 1999 is completely different to the politics of of now. But this whole idea of um democracy and enacting the will of the people and so on I think is it seems to be a lot more prescient now. A lot more topical now than arguably than what it was in 1999. I mean, we've always yeah. questioned um, d- d- democracy. I mean, we we in the Western world, it's it's something that we uh, apparently value a great deal, and it's the ancient one of the the great things that the ancient Greeks provided us with. But if you but if you look at the democracy that they enacted, it's completely different to the parliamentary democracy that we have in Britain. So there's a difference there. Yes. But if you also read um, the works of Aristotle and Plato, uh, I mean, in many respects, completely different kettles of fish. But one thing that they did agree on was that democracy was the worst form of government because it's easily open to corruption and so on. But also, I think now, because we've got um, here in Britain, we've got the whole thing to do with Brexit, which... um, is obviously a very emotive issue for a lot of people, regardless on what side of, of the debate that you fell on. But there's that whole thing of we're in a democracy, leaving the EU was voted upon, but there's that whole thing of are the politicians listening to the will of the people? I mean, what's going on? I mean, we don't want to talk about Brexit because it's 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 one of those peculiar political things of going, it's tremendously interesting, but also incredibly boring. And... Um, British politics has been deadlocked for the last two years over it. But anyway, the, the point being is that I think that if this story were to be made now, 
I think that would have been something that would be picked up a lot more, and there'd be a lot more political analysis in the story. But I mean, for, for what it is, it's 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 still an interesting um, uh, plot element. Or well, yeah. it's it's not an element; it's a major part of the plot, and yeah. um, it it gives you know the Purnell. You know, she's clearly someone who's very power hungry. Yeah. Um. So. It's, and I wonder how I wonder how much of a danger she could have been. If she wants to become this totalitarian dictator in a democracy, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, maybe she had the means to do it. Yeah, yeah, I think it was because again, I think the, the the it's it's interesting that you've got an actor in this story who was um, vying to be president and seemed prior to his death very likely to be voted in as president. And that's another thing as well. You've got this idea of um, very... Uh, you've got you've got uh, public figures who have, have came to prominence because they are television personalities or actors or whatever. Are they the best person to uh, be elected? I mean, as I said, these questions have always... Has, been there with you know regards to democracy and all the rest of it but as i say I, it's just a an interest for, from my perspective but what, my feeling is that um this is something that would be picked up on a lot more uh if the story were made now it does resonate a lot with present day now because we've got when you consider the entity which is crane mm-hmm where you can classify it in lots of different ways. You could think it's just a, a simulated artificial artificial intelligence or or whether you think it's actually a sentient life form with a soul or whatever. But we're in the age now where people are writing um pretty sophisticated artificial intelligence. And we've got the final scene, I'm not I'm jumping ahead to the very end. Mm-hmm. Pinel gets in her car and she's in a, a driverless car. Then we've got um Crane taking over it. it, and we're in the age now where we've got driverless cars. Oh, we're certainly going uh, down the, the route, and yeah, a lot of people are becoming aware that the the whole thing of uh, driverless cars, there's going to have to be very complicated uh, algorithms implanted into the the intelligence of the car. Yeah. How will the artificial intelligence of the car deal with um, potentially dangerous uh, car crashes? Yes, it's not just the software, it's the ethics of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard one example being, if there's an imminent crash, how do you how do you program the car to choose between smashing into the brick wall or smashing into the child? Yes, because then there's the whole question of, do you protect the, the, the person inside the car? Yeah. Or the individual on the road. Yeah, there's an awful lot of uh, moral and ethical questions. Even if you don't take that into account, there's the other issue as well, uh, is that any technology is clearly hackable. Yes. So there's also the potential of um, you know, th- uh, terrorists through hackable devices and hacking into cars and all the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that goes back to Atmos, doesn't it? With the Santorans. <laughs> oh, yes, yes, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah. So, Doctor Who's pretty good at predicting um, all the different ways we might die. <laughs> <laughs> and we still love it. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, it does. <laughs> I mean, uh, we haven't got to uh, to mannequins potentially killing us yet, so so that's something. No, I was watching Rose this morning, um, with my seven year old daughter. She wanted to watch that, and my two year old daughter, but we had to turn it off. She said it was too scary. Oh yeah, in fact, uh, I remember. Um, this was years ago. I was uh, I'd arranged to to meet a couple of friends uh, in uh, just outside Marks and Spencer, and it was quite a bitterly cold day. So I just um, went a bit into the entrance, and there was a mannequin display uh, next to a table. So I sat on the table and was just you know looking at the entrance and just waiting there, just waiting there. <laughs> and just waiting there a bit more. They were late, but you know, I was, oh. I was just, I was just, uh, I was just sitting there waiting. And then I went to turn to my right because there's another entrance, and I went, oh, they may be approaching from, from that direction. And just as I did that, there was there was a woman walking past, and she completely freaked out because she thought completely out of nowhere, <laughs> one of the mannequins started to move. <laughs> But it was you. Yeah, yeah, but it was me. Uh, I don't have a plastic look, by the way, just in case anyone's interested. Uh, but uh, it was... We just stood totally motionless for hours. <laughs> Wait. It wasn't hours, it was just minutes. But yeah, I, I suppose, yeah, I, I was pretty still. So if you were approaching from behind me, you know, and I'm right next to a mannequin display, I suppose because I was pretty still, they would, you, know, you would just think, oh, part of the display. And then I've just turned. Honestly, she... she Oh, she had a free song. She she actually stepped she actually stepped back and yelped. And then when she realised it was just it was just another human being, the relief. Uh, it was fant- what, fantastic. The relief. No, no, I'm being serious. It was just. <laughs> what was your What was your initial thought about what was happening? I just thought it was fantastic. I went, oh great, I've been mistaken for an auto. <laughs> Poor woman. Anyway. You should have just raised your hand up to her as a weapon. (laughs) Wow, no, I don't think that would have helped. (laughs) Poor woman was freaked out enough as it is. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I was enjoying Rose. haven't seen that in a while, Mm -hmm. but I only got to watch half of it. Yeah, And then we watched The Death of the Doctor, which is a Sarah Jane story. Oh yes, the one with Matt Smith and... um... Uh, Katie Manning yeah mm-hmm. Joe Jones Joe Jones yeah and that's a cool thing we had um, Russell T Davis wrote that two parter but obviously because of that he's wrote for the 11th Doctor now mm-hmm. yeah yeah that's probably the last um, stuff he wrote for the Doctor on TV yes it was yeah and it's uh, I mean I can understand it because he's uh, he, he wants to do other things and um, he's probably got a, a lot of projects already in development but it's a, it's a bit of a shame that we we won't see him right for Doctor Who because I think he's been very clear on that he has I mean he still likes it and he still watches it but he has no desire to write for it so um, Dent um, shortly after um, the Doctor's met Purnell mm-hmm. um, Dent's trying to outrun the Whispers yeah and then she meets Stengard mm-hmm. as she's trying to escape the voices and he calls her an intruder. And then miraculously, at this point of the story, the Doctor comes to the conclusion that it's a sentient sound form. <laughs> Even though he hasn't got much information to go on. Yeah, yeah, that's true. 
He says, um, a sound creature, it fits the facts. I mean, how do you how do you get to that conclusion from what's going on? <laughs> Must be a sound creature. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, the Doctor operates on a higher plane than, than yeah. we do. It does seem a bit of a leap of logic, I've got to admit. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, I suppose in terms of the world of Doctor Who and the sort of things that the Doctor encounters... Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't feel entirely out of place for the Doctor to to come to that conclusion. Yeah. But I suppose if you were watching another science fiction series, say for example, it was Blake Seven, even. Yeah. And you've got Avon, who would suddenly go, "It's clearly a sound creature." Um, <laughs> it's just like, mm, it doesn't quite work. I think it's one of those things where you get away with it because of the type of character the Doctor is. But anything else, if it, as I say, if it was Blake Seven or Star Trek or, or whatever, it it would feel a bit jarring. Yeah. Um, and the other characters are quite accepting of this fact that Crane is um, transferred his co- consciousness into sound. Yeah, uh, I mean, I can understand maybe Perry um, just accepting it, um, yeah. because obviously she knows the Doctor and has been on travels and so. On. But for everyone else, um, unless sound creatures is something that's established on this world, but there's there's no hint that that's the case. Um, yeah, they, they do seem very quickly accepting of it. Especially Purnell. Mm-hmm. You'd think she'd be the last person to accept it, possibly. Yeah, or at the very least d- d- denying it, because it's the last thing that she would want. So the Doctor suggests sealing off the museum of all sound mm-hmm. and he wants to find out what the creature's up to yep we'll have another moment of napton talking to the curator mm-hmm. um he's clearly up to something of course we don't know who napton is, is at this stage no no i mean he does seem to be a bit detached from the story uh, yeah. He he's clearly because res- all what's established in the in the very first episode is that he's doing some research, but every now and again he seems to to pop up, but that's all he seems to be doing. So as the story progresses, you know there's more to this character than meets the eye, as 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 it were. Even though we're listening to it, <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> there's more to him than meets the ear. I can't believe I've just said that. Anyway, <laughs> um, so there's. You, you do get a, a sense of um, a little bit of creeping unease there. But, um, yeah, it's interesting. And then we're up to the bit in the story where Pernell is waiting for the for the broadcast to happen. And she wonders who could have edited the clips. So she's getting closer to the truth. And this is the that scene you mentioned earlier where the Doctor radios and asks to restore communication to the outside. And then the doctor walks in, mm-hmm. and the doctor and the voice talk for a moment, don't they? And then the voice goes, "Yes, yeah, yeah." Oh yes, Napton radios the doctor, so they obviously hear his voice. Mm-hmm. Sten God kills Dent with a knife. Quite brutal. Yeah, that was, and I think that's 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 one moment in the story which is uh, which is certainly very creepy. So at the end of part two, the doctor confronts Purnell. Um, the whispers start to be heard and he deducts that it is actually Crane. Mm-hmm. And so once this entity vanishes, um, 
the doctor says it could be hiding anywhere. Um, and I think they say it could be seeking revenge. And um, Perry says revenge on who? And the doctor says whom? Corrector. Oh yes, I thought that. I thought that was a nice, um, a, yeah. a nice scene and a nice touch of humour. Because I think um, there's a there's a very serious tone uh, throughout the entire story. Even though that we, we were saying before that the the argumentative nature between uh, the Doctor and Perry uh, yeah. plays a bit more in a bit a bit more of a humorous way than we see on the television series. Those moments are very brief. They're pretty much at the very beginning of the story in episode one and then towards the very end everything else is yes. very very serious so yeah I, that scene stood out um i thought that was very good and then later on uh someone says whom think it's the right thing and then the doctor corrects them saying no who's correct in that in that instance so yeah i like that scene a lot and it's very much in keeping with um colin baker and his interpretation of the doctor because the big thing about the sixth doctor is his love of of grammar and words yeah. And he's not afraid to say it. <laughs> oh, no, no. He's certainly not. So when the Doctor's talking about Crane coming back from the dead, he's using words like reincarnated. And they just accept that this is a new, this is a life form. Um, how would you define Crane's entity? I wouldn't, I wouldn't use the word reincarnation. I suppose the Doctor's using it as a way so we can have a simple understanding of of what's happened yeah um i mean yeah it's clearly a life form in the sense that it's a sentient being um but obviously it's it's like nothing that we've ever encountered before because it's not tangible yeah but it's very interesting well it's not very interesting it's it's maybe <laughs> a little bit interesting it might be incredibly dull. I don't know. But, you know, in uh, The End of Time, there was this sense that the the Time Lords were... One of their big things was trying to transcend um, tangible physical being. Yeah. Um, and it's it's something that tends to get mentioned in, in science fiction stories. You know, so you've got that. I think, it's, I think it was even in an episode or two of Futurama. This sense that of um, a being that's not tangible is something that's actually incredibly powerful and dangerous so yeah I th- to answer you to go back to answer your question yeah i think it's uh, it's clearly a life form although yeah. although a bit of a bizarre one do you think um when you look at the technical aspect of it of creating um a copy of someone's personality um and having it function the way it that person would um would think um do you think to an extent you could call that a life form if it emulated the person's mind perfectly i suppose that's the the tricky thing i mean uh, in terms of in terms of this actual story um it's not just a carbon copy it's not a copy of um the person's mind because it's 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 not it's it's not repeating things or whatever. It's able to adapt to its situation, yeah, um, and come up with plans and, and interact in particular ways, and um, you're able to converse with it. Yeah, I would say in in this sense, it's clearly um, a life form. It's not as if it's something that's embedded within a computer, and it's mm-hmm. uh, you're interacting 
in the same way because it's um, dealing with algorithms and going well I'm able to sort of predict a conversation flow because based on X, Y, and Z, this is the sort of thing that the person would say. Um, it, fe- I think the idea is this is something that's organic, even though it's it's even though it's audio. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, it gets to the point where the disc is switched. I thought that was pretty obvious. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, so Pinel is now torturing Crane. Mm. Stengard is clearly disturbed by this, and because um, Crane's being tortured, yeah, which is interesting. He's he's um, cold blooded killer, and he's he's bothered about this life form that's being edited on a computer. <laughs> Yeah, that that's that's true, um, and I suppose it adds a bit of uh, character com- complexity to him. But when you think about it, it, it also makes some sort of sense because yes, he's a cold-blooded killer, but yeah. uh, it's to it's to get a job done, and there's no there's there's no necessarily relishing in it. It's it's a job that's quickly done. Prolonging something and um, in, instilling pain is obviously something very much beyond the pale for him. And it, it, it makes sense. Um, so I haven't got a problem with that. Uh, but yeah, it is very interesting. And it, it gives... It, one, it demonstrates how much of a nasty piece of work Purnell is. But I suppose it also answers the, the other question of if she was successful in becoming president, what sort of leader would she be? Well, it's mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly clear she wouldn't be a benevolent. So I guess this also raises the question of is it immoral to torture a simulated life form um well this may shock you but i think torture is immoral in general anyway yes i know you'll disagree no because <laughs> 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 you're evil no um i think it's it's something that um in this instance i'm trying to define what crane's um existence is mm. for example is his, in in essence, is his soul existing in this state? Well, I think it. This is clearly a being that can think and feel, mm-hmm. uh, and torturing it, um, completely mistreating it, making it feel excruciating pain. Um, I think on that basis alone, regardless of you know you going into the technicalities of it as what type of life form it is, yeah, I would say that is completely immoral. Yeah, I guess the point I'm making is a dangerous um, question about morality because you could you could apply this same logic to torturing a life form, couldn't you? Like, so... Yes, and that is an argument that that has been used. It's 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 making the person that you are torturing making them the other. And going, well, yeah. they're not human, they're not like me, so this is perfectly fine. Whereas, of course, you know, they are, it's, it's another human being, but what you've done is um, you are making them the other, and therefore making it mm. seemingly acceptable, when clearly it isn't. No. And of course, this um, this is happening in our culture today with um, with the farming of animals, really, isn't it? We're, we turn a blind eye, or we're ignorant to the fact that there's there's suffering going on mm. 
but some people would argue and say, well, they don't feel pain the way we do, which of course isn't true. Yes, that's true. In fact, because this was something that we we touched upon when we were looking at uh, the two doctors, because um, mm-hmm. that had a, because Robert Holmes was a vegetarian and Nicola Bryant is as well, um, and that was a major theme of that story. Um, and we have Shockeye who is torturing Jamie, and he actually mm-hmm. says the same thing, which is you know it's a, it's a lesser life form and doesn't they don't feel pain in the same way that we do. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not. We're not saying this that we are anti-eating meat because, you know, I eat meat, but you don't. You're a vegetarian. Um, but there's, a, I think you can, yeah, I think the, the argument of saying that, they, that the animals don't feel p- pain in the same way we do is, is a nonsense. They, they feel, they do feel pain. Yeah. Um, and just following this uh, this conversation yeah, the, the, there is there is, there is questions uh, to be asked. I think how, going to traditional farming methods, is, I think, is prob- probably a way. Uh, not maybe not a sustainable way, but mm. I mean, I mean, sustainable in respects to the um, the human population, not the um, the animal population. <laughs> yeah, it is a bit of a, a bit of a tricky one, but I think you can. I think the way that animals are killed in order for the consumption of food is something that clearly needs to be improved upon. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've seen I've seen uh, footage from from abattoirs which are absolutely appalling. Anyway, uh, yeah. Well, I think things are improving with um, regards to um, well vegetarianism etc mm-hmm. and, and veganism even though people are looking at it more of a, a healthy option mm-hmm. rather than a moral standpoint but yeah I don't think there's going to be a massive paradigm shift one day where everyone wakes up and thinks okay we'll, we'll just not we'll just not eat meat yeah because uh, I've forgotten who initially made the quote but there is something you know th- um there is this quote which says, you know, at, at some point, we I'm paraphrasing, of course, but we will look back at the time of eating animals with absolute disgust. I don't think that'll be the case. One of the... Because one of the things is, is that the um, the, the human digestive system, the, the way that we, we get nutrients and so on, uh, we, we do tend to be able to get a lot of the nutrients that we have better from consuming meat now that isn't to say of course that you you can't get them from from having a vegetarian or or vegan diet um it's just your body is able to get them a lot easier if you have a diet that includes meat um so i I think there will there will always there will always be some form of of meat consumption i think what's interesting is though is it's it's all about really i mean from my point of view of having a a, a healthy balanced diet um You know, and I, I I like eating vegetables. I don't I don't want to have a meal that just consists of of eating nothing but meat. And I think it's one of those things where it does need. I think we can all recognise that it needs improvement. These improvements will. I mean, one of the the ways that we can improve it because it's it's starting to become um, more of a thing is uh, meat cultivated in labs. 
the only th- so they're able at the moment they're able to cultivate um, <clears throat> meat perfectly well in labs. Uh, the only thing that's lacking apparently is the flavor at the minute. Once they've nailed that, then that raises the question whether you can cultivate this thing artificially and has all the nutrients that you need. Do we therefore? I think I think that's called salt. Sorry. Can I just add, add, can I just add a bit of seasoning? <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> I thought, is that some acronym that I haven't heard of? Right, yeah, yeah, or a bit of pepper. Yeah, 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 you're right. <laughs> Just needs a bit of seasoning. Problem solved. Problem solved, yeah, that's all you need. Um, so once they've added a bit of seasoning, then that raises the question, well, if you can artificially uh, create this with all the nutrients that we need, do we that, do we need traditional farming where we, we, we kill actual animals? And I've always wondered, with regards to the clone meat, or in vitro meat, whatever it's called, mm-hmm. Um, what is the benefit of it? Is it just the fact that it's a replacement? If people just downright want to eat meat, that's a replacement for it? Or will it have more nutrients initially than um, other supplements? Well, th- for, I mean, from what I've read is that that's another, th- that's another thing that they're looking into as well, the, the possibility that they, because you're artificially creating this, you can potentially do anything that you want with it. So that's another thing as well as you know making it super nutritional. I think is the phrase that I've I've read in a few places. But then again, it's nothing you can't get from um, readily available sources of protein and nutrients. No, no, they, uh, yeah, that's true. Okay. But I think it's, I, th- I think it'll make it. It's just more pleasurable eating, say, a traditional burger than 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 popping a whole load of pills in order to get the supplements. This took an interesting turn. I know. <laughs> I forgot where we were at. Ah, uh, who cares? <laughs> no, I think. Uh, where? No, hang on. Where were we? Oh, I, I know where we were at. Okay, so, okay, um, Crane's being tortured. Oh yes, that was it. Yeah, it's yeah. like editing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be incred- incredibly torturous. Yes. I remember when I was editing the podcast for the Three Doctors. That was a headache. <laughs> just because of I mean one we actually ended up recording something that was quite long so but that's just standard editing that's absolutely fine but the amount of technical problems that kept on popping up it were, oh yeah that, that was yeah. That, that was painful I think a lot of people run into uh, sync problems yeah yeah you hesitated there I was going to say like not like a blocked sync <laughs> like um, synchronisation issues <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've wanted to know, just talking about synchronization, is how did someone discover that Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon syncs up with the movie The Wizard of Oz? Does it really? Does everyone know this? Oh, yeah, it's one. It's well, relative, relatively. Um, so, if you play Dark Side of the Moon from the second row of the the line that the MGM line. <laughs> The album Dark Side of the Moon syncs up with The Wizard of Oz. Brilliant. Yeah, and it's just, how did someone find that out? <laughs> Why did someone want to find that out? <laughs> and uh, Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here apparently syncs up with Blade Runner as well. Wow. Yeah. Do you think it was intentional? No, no, it's, it, well, it's, it's synchronization. It's, it's, it's happenstance. It's, it's, it's an accident, but it's just like someone found that out. <laughs> I mean, 
did, did they just try it once and it just, oh, this happens to work? Or did they go, right, I want to find an album that syncs up with The Wizard of Oz and they went through hundreds of albums until <laughs> they found it was Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah. yeah. Weird. Anyway. Strange. <laughs> Again, I forgot where we were. Sorry, I'm going off on complete wild tangents and I'm not helping. <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, Torture. Yeah, he's been he's been getting tortured for the past half hour. <laughs> he's still being tortured. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, oh, Perry walks in on Pernell. Mm-hmm. Um, she runs off, tells Dengard, um, and then he brings her back to Pernell. Oh, Perry unleashes Crane. Was that accidental? No, no, that was deliberate because deliberate, she okay. she needed to get out, and it was sort of the, the last gamble. Um, so yeah, that that was deliberate. So after this, the Doctor realises that the broadcast will unleash Crane everywhere. Mm-hmm. And then we've got um, the Doctor running. I think he's trying to get to Purnell, but this is the cliffhanger and he's just screaming, No! <laughs> I think of, of all the cliffhangers, I think that was the, that was the weakest. Uh, <laughs> it, didn't, it didn't quite work, but... Um... There is that thing, you know, that the doctor's running and he's saying that he's a bit out of shape. Um, yeah. Which became a bit of a, a sort of like a, a bit of a joke in the Conan Baker era. And then we actually see him access, uh, exercising Terror of the Vervoids. Just that, that image of uh, Colin Baker running. Before the broadcast goes out, the doctor tries to explain to Crane what the broadcast will mean for his legacy. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, he's endorsed in Purnell. And it's obviously going to come back to his endorsement um, of that. Mm-hmm. And this is where he kind of changes his mind, doesn't he? Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. If he hadn't, do you think he would have just went on a killing spree all over the world? I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, it's a bit, it's a bit, it's a bit sort of inconsistent in some respects of how the alien creature behaves because you're wondering... Is he behaving in a way just to get back to Purnell? Or... I think his motives had kind of gone out the window because after he was tortured, mm. he kind of went off the rails a bit, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, went a bit unhinged. But then it take, yeah. I suppose it takes the Doctor to, um, to, to, to reason with it. Yeah, pull him back. Mm. Yeah. So the Doctor faces off with Purnell after speaking to Crane. Mm-hmm. And she threatens to shoot him. The broadcast begins, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, the Doctor's turned off the intercom. And the Doctor says out loud that the original audio file is archived there in the museum. And obviously Perry picks up on this, doesn't she? Yeah. She figures out that they have the file and and they can create this, um, I don't know, cancellation wave mm-hmm. to stop the broadcast. Yeah. Well, she, well, Perry's the one who sort of picks up. There's a, there's a message there, but I think it's the curator, yeah, who who mentions oh, they can set up a cancellation wave, yeah. And of course, the doctor's joking on about the broadcast. He's um, he starts yawning. <laughs> He's like, oh, I hope it gets better for now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the, the, that is quite nice. Sort of like that, you know. He's just winding up for now, <laughs> and I did I did like that because it was she's threatening the doctor. But uh, but it, it but 
again, it's, I think it's one of those moments where it, it's it's um, some nice humour to, to elevate the mood of the story. Yeah. Which I think at that point is, uh, was, was needed. And of course, as, as we learn, um, on the broadcaster's audio, Crane's just raving about Purnell. Mm-hmm. There's no change yet. Um, and then we learn that the um, the broadcasted audio is just silence at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so the plans have been kind of stopped for now. So um, Stengard tells Purnell that they've been broadcasting in silence. So she's obviously a bit annoyed at this stage. Mm-hmm. And the doctor explains to her over the intercom, he says, it's called waveform cancellation. And I thought, he shouldn't tell her what's happening. If there's any hopes that she's not going to try and reverse it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, she may have eventually guessed that's what was going, uh, that that was happening, but at least that would have delayed it a bit further because she's got to work out what's happened in order for her to overcome what he's done. So yeah, yeah. That, that was a bit careless. Totally. Like a bad villain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then, of course, the Doctor Ed Pinnell um talk about what we were talking about earlier and when he says um she can't betray the will of the electorate and do as she pleases mm-hmm. um and she says she's got this vision to fix society and she, you know she firmly believes that democracy doesn't work mm-hmm. oh and then the doctor says uh, maybe the creature was closer to his own morals than he thought I'm not too sure what you meant by that. Uh, the way I interpret it, because uh, up until that point, they'd been trying to um, stop and perhaps even destroy the creature. But I think when the when the Doctor has a bit more of an idea of what's going on, uh, the creature clearly is there to stop Purnell. Uh, I think the Doctor cottons onto that and goes, oh, I, the way I interpret it is that, oh, maybe he's, maybe essentially he's doing the right thing and is this closer to our way of thinking than we perhaps realised. That's the way I, inter- I interpret it. Right, okay. And the Doctor claims that Crane was killed with the waveform cancellation. Yeah, and because at first I thought that was him just bluffing. But later on, he um, he seems to have um, generally believed that and been surprised he was proved wrong. And we learn that Purnell was trying to talk Crane out of um, denouncing her in a speech. Mm-hmm. And Crane told told Purnell over the phone that so, someone has a gun to his head, and he hears the the tutting sound. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <Boy> shot. <laughs> had, had you pieced that <laughs> that together? <laughs> um. Well, I thought that was a bit. It was a bit weird because when we hear the audio clip, apparently. When it hasn't been altered, he's very calm when he says, "There's a gun to my head." Yeah, it's it's just really peculiar. Um, but yeah, then I thought the the whole thing to do with the tutting was quite funny. <laughs> um, particularly because it wasn't something that I was particularly aware of up until that no. point, and no. uh, it was sort of a character trait which. Um, I mean, you don't want it flagged up uh, ma- massively, and I suppose it's one of those things... He could, he could have really overplayed it, couldn't he? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, cut off. And you, you don't want someone tutting to be... It's like, why is the tutting so loud? Um, I suppose it's one of those things, if you if you were to go back to listen, you'd go, oh, yes, of course he is. You know, it's like, but it wasn't up until that point, and then I was just suddenly aware of <laughs> just the constant tutting. Um, yeah, I thought... I thought it was um, interestingly handled, shall we say. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and then moments later, Stengard dies, doesn't he? He's talking to the computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, it's Crane he's talking to. Yes, yeah, yeah. And again, I thought that, that, was, that was a good scene because initially... Um, I did. I did think he was speaking to the computer, and um, so I think that was nicely handled. And that goes back to the point that we were saying before. I think the story could have made more of those type of moments, um, yeah. where you kind of second second guessing a bit, or there's a sudden realization of, oh, it's not who or what you think it is. Um, yeah, it's like the times when the story has tried to deceive you. Mm-hmm. It's resolved moments later, like the real doctor walks in the room and says, hello, I'm here. Or, in this case, um, Stengard's killed pretty quickly. Um, But yeah, it would be nice to have more moments like this. Yeah, and and build up more. Because, yeah, as you say, I mean, with regards to the doctor walking in a few moments later, I mean, it was so obvious it was the the creature to begin with anyway. But yeah, that's quickly resolved. And then the whole thing to do with uh, the fact that the, the disc was stolen... Well, it's it's pretty much as you kind of going. Oh, I know that's what happened. It's uh, it's pretty much mentioned by Pernell. Um, So when those moments do happen, there's very little made of them, and this is the one occasion that I actually think that it works. You know, he's talking to the computer, and it seems to be flowing as normal, but then you realise, pretty much at the you know the the very last minute, that he has been talking to the creature. It's it's been. I think when the computer was. Giving him assurances that the power was turned off. <laughs> That's when I kind of realised. Yes, yeah, yeah. But again, I mean, because that, that, that was, you know, it was building up at that moment. Go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> but yeah, I th- but I actually think that was handled quite well. Um, and as I say, it's just a shame that the story didn't have more of, the, more of those type of moments. Then we've got the scene with the curator and Napton. Mm-hmm. They find Stengard's body. Um, Napton wants to say goodbye because he's finished his research. Um, and I was um, quite intrigued to find out what's his research, what's really going on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's been a long time since I've listened to this story. But of course, we realise that when the doctor arrives, um, nobody can see him. Mm-hmm. But he seems quite nice. He's, Crane says um, he's sorry for the deception and he's feeling much better now. And, and he kind of, um, that's the end of it. <laughs> yeah. But there's, um, there is a moment, you know that uh, because of the way that things are materialised and everyone knows the type of person that Purnell is, her political ambitions are completely destroyed. Um, it's whether she, she can escape justice or not. But it was, I think it was quite surprising of how final it was because um, she dies in an explosion. Well, when um, Pernell's waiting for the broadcast to start, um, well, the, the doctor tries to convince her to stop. Mm-hmm. 
when she doesn't, he says, oh, well, at least I've tried. And this reminded me of the 13th Doctor um, in Resolution. At the end, she gives the Dalek one chance to stop. And she's like, oh, well, I tried. <laughs> it's It's almost like for his own conscience... He gave the option to stop. Yeah. Well, actually, it reminded me more of David Tennant's Doctor more than anything else because um, one of the things with with Tennant's Doctor was you get one warning or one attempt and then that's it. Um, So, yeah, it reminded me because... I mean, I may be be mistaken. If you can think of an example, um, uh, I'd be interested to hear. But this, this, in terms of televised Doctor Who... I wasn't aware of this being a big thing with Colin Baker's Doctor. I mean, he, he would obviously he would obviously attempt to uh, to resolve the situation, but the whole thing of well, at least I tried. Whereas I think this is this is something that feels a bit more new series. Yeah, I don't think he ever had had the opportunity. Mm. Maybe if he had a longer um, run as the Doctor. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, maybe this is one of the one of those occasions of this sort of character development uh, introduced in Big Finish, because this is uh, this was released in November nineteen ninety nine, as we said. Maybe this is uh, just one element that actually influenced the return of the the televised show. So when they finally do broadcast, and the broadcasts the murder mm-hmm. of Crane. Yeah. Um. Crane changes it to remove any ambiguity about the murder. Mm-hmm. So, he's, in essence, he's given a false statement just to, um, just to incriminate her fully. So you could argue, is this an ethical approach? Yeah. Um, I mean, the truth has come out, but it's through a lie. And it's, yeah, it, it is a bit funny. I mean, this is completely, again, another bizarre example, I suppose. But um, I'm quite fond of the TV series Columbo. But there's, yeah. uh, but there's an episode, I think it's in the second series, where um, uh, he's actually in London. And on a, on a Blackman's one of the guest stars. It's one of the naffest episodes of television ever made. Um, and of course, because this is an American television show, they make a big deal of the fact that he's in London. It, it all plays up to the, the stereotypes that you can imagine. <laughs> um, and to the point, it's just like, no one talks like that. It's just weird. Anyway. Um, Was it all like Dick Van Dyke's everywhere? <laughs> yes, but it's really odd because they've got, because they're in London, they've actually got British actors <laughs> to play the parts. Right. But they've got okay. the British actors to sort of Dick Van Dyke it up, if I can put it like that. And it's it's it, the uh, it's um it's got to be seen to be believed. It's uh, I mean it's it's enjoyable if I can put it like that. But it's it's unbelievably tacky. Anyway, it it always bother. One of the things that bothers me about that episode is that Columbo actually falsifies evidence in order to catch the killers. Oh, and it really bugs me because of the because t- the, the, I, I love Columbo. I think it's a great TV series, um, but he all you know he's a he's a proper detective and he always puts all the clues together. But it's the mm. fact that he falsifies the evidence in order to catch the killers. It, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't. I remember I was um, 
there was an incident at somewhere I worked mm. and um I had these um police round and they were looking at the CCTV mm-hmm. and one of the issues was that one of the one of the CCTV CCTV systems the the time was 2 minutes off um what I mean by that is like the literally the the, the clock on the machine was 2 minutes fast right and it caused a discrepancy in in watching the incident on one CCTV system and the other. Okay. Um, and I explained this, and I and I explained why because we had the the CCTV system was saying kind of service the day before, and I knew why it was out of sync. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did say to them, "Look, can we not like, um, can we not just change it now?" And, you know, they they were adamant that no, we can't falsify that. <laughs> Well, I'm so pleased that they said that. I'm... <laughs> um, as it turns out, because because it was, there was a discrepancy with the time index, I actually had to go to court and explain this. <laughs> oh, did you? All right, okay. And I was, and it turns out I was the only witness to the crime because I, I because I was the one who saw it on CCTV. So I was getting all sorts of scrutiny thrown at us. I was the only person there up on the stand. <laughs> Wow, that's so, some stressful. I only I only went there just to present the CCTV. I wasn't. <laughs> wow, <laughs> when was this? Oh, this was just a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. Just, why have I never heard the story before? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but no, we weren't allowed to change the facts. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but that's that's what I'm. That's what I like to say. Just um, the police were adamant that even though they were certain of the truth. Mm-hmm. The way they saw it, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't, you can't. Um, no, you can't falsify the you, evidence. You can't, you can't falsify I mean, evidence. Yes. I mean, in this case, I mean, one because that's the right thing to do. Two, uh, the evidence is there. It just needs, it just needs a, a simple explanation, which you provided. Three, say for example, um, it turned out that the evidence was falsified then the whole thing gets chucked out of court and whatever the crime was, the, the perpetrator gets away scot-free because the evidence was falsified. Disgraceful behaviour. <laughs> Do you know what I've got to say to that? Um, no. I'm intrigued. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know why I'm having to go at Crane for falsifying evidence. He's not the police. <laughs> <laughs> no. So... Pernell's talking about um, the means to an end with what she was doing. She says a man's life is a small price to pay for what she could achieve. Mm-hmm. And the doctor says, then yours is not a world in which I want to live. Yeah. But the sixth doctor kills plenty of people. Not intentionally. The hypocrisy of that <laughs> sentence. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's because it's sort of like it's not a world I want to live in, because that's my job. So I thought it's great um, Crane got his revenge by ruining Purnell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, political career, and also she's now suspected of um, the murder yep. of, of Crane. Mm-hmm. But of course, he goes one step further <laughs> and just kills her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And why, and why not? <laughs> but it was funny because up until that point I, I was wondering whether um, maybe we would see Purnell 
in another you know in a, in a future adventure where they maybe pick it up but of course oh no she's <laughs> she's blown up so that's uh, yeah no, that's not happening that put that puts pay to that but you know he put so much effort into ruining her career <laughs> um I, but i guess he wants to redeem his reputation as well yeah and there was that question of you know maybe there's a possibility in many years to come she's somehow managed to get her political career back on track yeah i mean it's a bit difficult to see how that would be possible given the fact you know what's been revealed but you know where there's a will there's a way i suppose so it completely gets rid of that possibility and of course um karina just left a voicemail for her Mm -hmm. could who else is he left a voicemail for (laughs) he could have published a podcast oh bloody hell well hopefully it's an unpopular one you know (laughs) <laughs> that no one listens to. Yeah. <laughs> Just some dangerous thing waiting to be discovered. So the Doctor and Perry say goodbye to everyone. Um, and with regards to Purnell, the Doctor says, um, where will she go? And Perry says, no one will listen to her for a while, but perhaps, uh, but people always find a way in time. Yeah. It's like they're they're implying that there's still more to come, or she she she's still a bit of a danger. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant before when because the, yeah. the, there was that sense of maybe she could you know she could come back, and that was when oh will she be a character that pops up in a future uh, adventure? <laughs> but no, it's like it must mean an afterthought. Let's just kill her off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mate, yeah. <laughs> because at that point, when when it happens, it feels like the story's come to an end. Yeah. Uh, because at that point, you know, everything seems to be wrapped up. I think even at that point, the the uh, Doctor and Perry have left in the TARDIS. And at the, uh, and at this point, it it, it it's uh, because everything that's taken place has occurred once they've arrived. Yeah. So it, it it's a bit interesting that so once they're left, we're still sort of lingering a bit. Totally. Yeah. Um, so Crane stays to help um, the curator mm-hmm. of the museum. Yeah, I don't know to what extent. No, but it might be a good like little symbiotic relationship because he's dead and doesn't exist, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the other's blind. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there could be a spin-off in the works. There, do you remember that movie? Um, See no evil, hear no evil with Gene Wilder, <laughs> Richard Pryor. <laughs> yes. It could be a um, movie about uh, Crane and the Curator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be fantastic. Just imagine the shenanigans. One's blind and one is sound. <laughs> <laughs> the original odd couple. Yeah. <laughs> Careful, Big Finish will end up doing it and we'll have a whole other series to buy. So, like I mentioned earlier on, the scene in the car, it kind of reflects modern day fears of AI and driverless cars. Mm-hmm. So I think if that story was made now, they might have um, maybe played a little bit more on that. Possibly. On those, yeah. on those fears, possibly. Yeah. Or they would um, focus it on podcasts. The uh, podcast of terror. <laughs> <laughs> the podcast of death. Um, <laughs> we joke, that's probably going to be in the next series of Big Finish Audio Adventures. So just before we we finish off, um, just as a summing up of the whispers of terror, and I suppose like I suppose an easy, succinct way, 
if you were to rank it out of 10, what would you give it? Now, you have to remind me, did I give... Did we rate Phantasmagoria? Uh, yes, we did. Did I, did I say 7 for that? Yes, because uh, we uh, we both gave it 7, yeah. Right, well, I think I'm going to have to rank this slightly lower. Mm. Um, so I'll, I'll go with 6, even though that seems a little bit... A little bit on the halfway point, but too low. I'll go with 6.5. Okay, well, funny enough, that's, exa- <laughs> that's exactly what I've given it, 6.5, because I think, um, I mean, not even comparing it to Phantasmagoria, I'd, I'd, I'd give it that ranking, but if you are to make the comparison, Phantasmagoria is a, it's clearly a much better story, in my view. Um, the Whispers of Terrors just sneaks in a little bit higher f- uh, for the Sirens of Time, because I think it's... Um, I just prefer its standalone nature, and I think it is a, it is an interesting idea. I think it it was presented really well, but it had more potential. Yes, that's the thing. It's I think it's a it's 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 a it's a decent story presented well, but it, it there's potential there to to make it a lot better, which is a, as is what we said. Uh, they could have made a lot more. It could have been a lot more creepy. They could have used uh, the idea of this. Uh, the sound creature which can effectively impersonate every sound they could have made a bit more of that um, so just things like that but as it is I think um, it has a very good cast all the actors are really rather good um, it's a decent enough story I think the sound design and music by Nicholas Briggs is interesting I read somewhere but it isn't a direct quote so I'm not entirely sure if Nicholas Briggs did say this but apparently Nicholas Briggs isn't too keen on the music he provided for this story but actually I think it's quite good because it's very 80s so it feels very much a part of the Colin Baker era it reminded me of the music that Elizabeth Parker did she did the music for Time uh, Time Lash and Jonathan Gibbs uh, particularly the scores he did for Warriors of the Deep and Vengeance on Varos Um, there were just moments that I felt had that sort of flavour so it feels very much of the period that it's the story supposed to be set in. I definitely thought that, yeah. Mm-hmm. So after this week, we're going to take a short break from Big Finish stories. And we'll be going back to multi-doctor stories as we revisit Twice Upon a Time. Is that right, Lee? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. <laughs> Just check we didn't have like different schedules. <laughs> no, no, One that's... of these weeks, it's going to crop up where we've just done completely different research well that'd be interesting um but yeah no no uh, so we'll be doing the final uh multi-doctor story that there is up until this point which is twice upon a time Uh, but just before we sign off just the the usual thing you can find us at itunes and soundcloud we've also got our own website clusterbell.co.uk where you can find all the podcasts uh there as well please get in contact we would absolutely love to hear from you you can find us on facebook if you just search for cloisterbell we're also on Twitter. Our handle is at Podcast Bell. And we're also on Instagram at Cloyster underscore Bell. Yeah, and please like, follow, subscribe. Remember to give us a rating as well. We'd appreciate that on SoundCloud or iTunes. Yeah, that would be absolutely great. And we would really, really appreciate it. But until next week, take care and goodbye. Goodbye.